Hello and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Lovely to have you here. And I, I'm doing this quickly before I leave for a, um, I'm not doing this quickly. I'm doing this before I leave quickly. No, I'm not leaving quickly. I'm not doing this quickly. I'm going to be here for a while. Don't worry about it. I don't know why the word quickly. It just appears in my vocabulary. We like to sometimes use words uh, or rather, we use words unknowingly. See, it's right there. I wanted to say something, something else was said. It's such an important thing to kind of have your thoughts and your words match. And I think that comes with a little bit more um, experience. It comes with a little bit more thought. It comes with a little bit more maturity. Because I remember when um, I when I started doing stand-up 2009, 10, uh, it was just the pleasure of going up on stage and dropping, um, you know, uh, fucks and shits and the all oh, motherfuckers and it, it was it was absolutely oh joyful i had um uh the, the the primary reason for doing um shows was like wow i can get away with saying shit on stage and no one's scolding me that was such a stupid reason but it was a very enjoyable reason uh but slowly wore out and then the sort of uh importance not sort of importance see again the importance of being funny. Um, and even in that space, right, you st- first start off with doing jokes that are expected of you. You start talking about current affairs, then you start talking about politics, and you start talking about social um, observations when it comes to uh, the place you live. Sorry, guys, just a moment. There's my computer talking to me. I just spoke back to it. Anyway, I'm back with you. I shouldn't have done that. Unprofessional, some would call it, but I just have to because otherwise this voice, uh, screen readers is constantly speaking in my ear and I can't talk to you then when someone's talking to me. That's an annoying thing when that happens, right? When you're on the phone and someone's trying to ask you something, you're just like, shit, what do I do now? But let me not digress. So the thing is when um, you're in that space where you're supposed to talk about stuff that you're not really uh, sure about or that stuff you're not interested in, you kind of sound lame and you sound like the 99 other percent of people who are trying to make jokes and that's where comedy is right now you know where people who are rushing to do the first joke on a topic and that's what happens when you have people rushing to the first thing about first things about things uh, whether it's journalists whether it's comedians whether it's um, people making content whatever form of content that may be it just sounds really rushed. It sounds half-baked. It doesn't sound good. But uh, that took me some time to realize and also a combination of that along with the way I was speaking, the way I was using my words. Um, you know, you have this idea to sound more important than you are on stage and you start uh, thinking about that in the sense of the words you use. You take simple ideas and make them sound more complicated. You use big words to describe small things. You use big uh, vocabulary to define things that are really, really simple. Uh, and you do that for a while thinking, hey, cool, I sound like I am much more intriguing and a much more complex individual as opposed to saying, yeah, you know what, I'm just full of shit. And once you break that full of shit um, uh, line, once you cross the full of shit 
once they line the, the stain, then you start becoming a little bit more chilled out. You start becoming a bit more laid back with the way you look at your comedy. You realize you're not, you're not the shit. You're not that funny. You're not that important. You're not a social observer. You're not a commentator on the reality of where we are. And you stop sounding less like Russell Brand and sounding more like yourself, which is a good place to be if you're not Russell Brand, right? Because if you start saying th things in their simplicity, you start saying things because they're meant to be funny and no more, and you start enjoying that process, that's when you actually start um, having fun. And that's when you actually start sounding good. And that's when you actually um, can, I think, not sleep at night, because I think many people sleep at night, but I think you can actually become more than what you are already doing because you realize that all the rest is fluff, all the rest is frills that you were focusing on because you thought that's what's important. But um, once you really start saying things because that's what they are and that's why you enjoy saying them and not worrying too much about the big words or the big ideas, but the big laughs being funny, I think you enjoy you 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 sort of sort of find your space and go beyond just uh, what you thought you were able to do and uh, I don't know I haven't reached a place yet I, that's why that's why I'm hesitating uh, but it's 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 a fun thing and I think it's with every aspect of work uh, or things that you do whether it's art or work I think um, this approach seems to help like whether it's podcasting whether it's your regular job I think if you should take yourself too seriously and think that you know what you have to really uh, present this particular version of what people expect you to look like, behave like, work like, uh, you know, uh, your output. And then you, you start dressing in a certain way, speaking in a certain way. Um, it, it doesn't really serve uh, a longer purpose because it kind of burns you out. You're kind of living this, this, this kind of complex um, lie that you built and you get lost in that very easily. So yeah, just a little bit of, uh, I don't know what that is, but an observation uh, based on what I've experienced. So if it helps, it helps. If it doesn't, I might be a fool. But anyhow, my guest on today's episode is uh, someone who has experienced a very, very interesting yet challenging set of um, obstacles and experiences over his life and he's here today to talk about what he's been through and what he's created for himself. Scott Greenberg is an expert and he helps um, well companies understand how franchises or franchises not franchises franchises can um, be led better and also how to develop and maximize human potential within these franchises. Uh, he's a motivational speaker. He's a leadership. Um, uh, expert, if that, for lack of a better word, and he goes around uh, telling people how they can help themselves using his examples of what he's been through in his life. And he's here today to talk about that and a whole lot more. So you're in store for a lovely conversation with Scott Greenberg, only here on the Soapy Rao Show. As always, I appreciate you listening. Till the next episode, goodbye, God bless, and take care of yourselves. Cheers. Scott Greenberg, thank you so much for joining me, and I really appreciate you being on this podcast. Yeah, glad to be here. 
Fantastic. So, uh, well, you you know you you have so many hats you wear. A motivational speaker. You're 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 an expert in franchises, and you do uh, so much in the world of business. But clearly, there is a person um, behind all these these directions that your life has taken. Um, so, can you maybe start with uh, telling me how? your perspective has changed over the years when it comes to looking at what you want to do in life. I learned at a very early age how much I don't control. You know, like we all make our plans for life, but life has plans for us and life wins. Right. And so, you know, you're young, you have these ambitions, you want to conquer the world, there's these things you want to do. And then sort of like a video game avatar, you get bumped in different directions and adversity you weren't anticipating starts to come your way. Perhaps opportunities start to come your way. Mm-hmm. And so this you're, you get set on this adventure and that's been the case for me. And so, um, you know, for me, I faced adversity pretty early on. I graduated college, I got a film school at New York University. And after a semester, I was diagnosed with cancer. And so I had to drop out of school and spend the, the year fighting it. Well, in film school, they used to teach us you know, write about what you know and pay attention to the human condition. Like really yeah. pay attention to how people deal with their feelings so that when you're making films and writing characters, it could be authentic. And that made me curious. Right. So when I was going through cancer, I did a lot of journaling and I watched a lot of the other cancer patients around me and derived a lot of wisdom from that that I've tried to apply to, you know, every every step of my life. So that really early on, it kind of made me curious. It made me realize where I don't have power to focus on where I do have control and that's overall it served me well and you know the, the thing is that it's it's a, it's a little bit hard to talk to someone about a disease like cancer right because it's it's something that's so suddenly like I feel from the 1990s when I was um, you know 10 years old to now it's become a lot more commonplace the, the disease itself and uh, you know, fortunately, of course, there are developments in the medical world that are helping. But to talk to someone who's been through the disease, and you mentioned through it twice, um, what goes on in your mind? I mean, you said, of course, the idea of letting go and not having any control over certain aspects of your life. But it's it's a much more deeper sense. I don't know if it's fear or there's a deeper sense of why me and wh- what what was your experience, not just with the recovery, but with making peace with the idea that you have something like this? Um, you know, my perspective was a little bit different growing up. Um, certainly, I was someone who always had to plan the next step. Like, what mm. am I going to be doing two years from now and really sort of, again, be in control of it? And so, again, this was never part of my plan. However, I really didn't go through a big why me phase. Like, I was wondering what I might have done or how I got it. But as far I didn't feel the injustice. And, and the main reason for that is my grandmother is a Holocaust survivor. She was actually one of the um, Oscar Schindler Jews, kind of sort of saved by him, but went through some really horrible stuff. My grandfather, the same thing. You know, they survived all that. And so I grew up always hearing her story. She was traumatized by the whole thing. And, you know, I don't remember too many conversations where she didn't bring it up. And so I guess I always felt like, well, that's just life, that everybody goes through war. Everybody suffers tremendous loss. Hasn't happened to me yet, but for me, it was almost normalized. Not that it was okay, but it wasn't abnormal. 
And so the first thought that went through my mind is, oh, okay, I guess it's my turn. Hmm. And so in a way that was helpful because I didn't go through a big injustice. Not that I wasn't terrified, freaking out, but I wouldn't say that I was angry. Um, So, you know, that, that really made a difference for me. Yeah. No, that's such a, that's such a strange thing that uh, I totally recognize that with that statement, right? Because this, it's almost like uh, we are told that life, um, I don't know by whom, but there is a certain narrative uh, where we want to pretend that life is okay and we should only look at the highlights and kind of brush everything else under the carpet, right? That um, Especially that comes to the forefront with social media and things like that, where you only want to show your strongest foot forward. But it's a very interesting uh, way to, to look at the world, right? We're saying, okay, now it's my turn. So, hey, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and face it the way I'm going to face it in my own. But um, did you feel that after that instance where you experienced your first um, kind of fight with cancer, were you expecting, did your mindset change to this, this, this place where you're like waiting for the next shoe to drop? Or were you like, okay, this is the thing I've served my due. I'm going to move on. I'm I'm strong, kind of thing. For the first few years, every time I got a headache, a stomach ache, a chest pain, an itch, mm. the theory is always, uh oh, the cancer is back. Mm. And so mm. every doctor's visit, and first it was every you know three months, then it was six months, then it was once a year. You know, you, you get nervous, and that starts to kind of fade away. Yeah. And before you know it, you're not worrying about that. You're just getting pissed off in traffic again. You know, <laughs> yeah, every yeah. time people say, oh, my whole perspective in life changes. It's like, well, you're kind of expected to think that and to say that. And, and maybe yeah. it does for me. You know, I went back to worrying about small things and that's just kind of how life is. Yeah, um, because you hear that. Uh, you're absolutely right because you're and you can't even question that, right? Because I say, are you sure does every person who survives a certain life changing disease or a life threatening disease that come out wiser and more profound? Uh, but it's it's nice to hear that you you, you do become uh, a regular human being after some time. Yeah. 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 And sw- sweating the small stuff yeah. and getting stressed out over things I shouldn't. And yeah, of course, I was grateful. I was proud for what I went through. And, you know, maybe one of the big gifts was, again, realizing at age 22 that I wasn't in control, that life has plans for me. And remember, you know, I was determined to stay in film school, that I'm going to win my Oscar someday and people are going to interview me and talk about how courageous I was. Yeah. Staying in film school, chemotherapy during the day and shooting films at night. Right. And then I talked to this doctor. He's like, how much are you paying in tuition at New York University? Go home. Be with your parents. You can always come back to school. Like, don't be such a hero. And it was the right. first time in my life I had to deviate from the plan. And mm. at first it was really shocking. And then it was such a relief to not feel like I have to be in control. And that's kind of stayed with me. The idea of like, all right, let's see where this goes. I'm going to make my plans. I'm going to choose this direction, but I won't be surprised if life bumps me in a new direction. That has kind of been there. And I think life's plan for me has been a little bit more mysterious and exciting and interesting than maybe what I had planned for myself. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's actually um, really nice to hear because we, we always kind of bitch life out going, oh, how, why me? And how could this go in this way? And, and in fact, you know, I, I, I kind of really resonate with that because when I look back, I'm like, if I'd planned it, I don't think I'd ever be so inventive or so creative with what I've done with myself. <laughs> Just the various ways I've been pulled and 
uh, sent and brought back. And um, so you wanted to make films, and you had to let go of that particular control in, in that phase of your life. But how did, um, or rather, how did you then move to this space you're in now? And what was the motivation behind uh, doing what you're doing? So I was in cancer treatment for about a year. And again, this was in my 20s. It was a long time ago. And at the end of my treatment, I was just so thrilled to get back to life. I said, forget film school. I had to leave of absence. I could have gone back. I said, mm -hmm. I think I'm going to move back to Los Angeles where I had gotten my undergraduate degree and just start working in the film business. Right. And I did for a number of years. But then an opportunity to give what I thought would be my first and only motivational speech. A friend of mine was putting on a conference and had heard some of the ways you know that I talked about my cancer and thought it was kind of inspiring. And he said, why don't you give a talk at our leadership conference about your experience and how it applies to leadership? Right. So I did, and I threw in some jokes and a few ideas, and it went well. And I started getting some invitations to other events because of that first one. And eventually someone said, we can pay you. I'm like, well, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> and I realized I could still tell stories giving you speeches like I could on film, but um, in a way that helps people. And so I continued working in the film business while doing the motivational speaking. And both careers together kind of got bigger and bigger. And then I realized if I want to get great at either one, I have to make a choice. I really can't do both. And the live speaking thing just kind of spoke to me. And so I went with that. And so... For a number of years, I started just doing full-time motivational speaking, traveling around the United States, speaking at schools and conferences. And over the years, my material evolved. I didn't want to spend my whole life just talking about battling cancer. You know, I use it as a metaphor. We all get our cancers. What matters is how you react and positive attitude and, you know, things we've all heard a million times. Then I started talking about peak performance and leadership and just kind of evolved. And I'd like to think that I got better. But... It always bothered me that here I am talking about leadership to people with real leadership jobs, with more yeah. life experience. And here I am just regurgitating cliches. And I got my personal stories, but what do I really know about this? And by that point, I was married. My wife and I were starting a family. And I didn't want to travel so much. And then I saw an airline magazine ad for a franchise that we have here in Los Angeles or here in the United States called Edible Arrangements. It's fruit baskets, floral arrangements made uh, made out of fresh fruit. And I thought, wow, we have a lot of gift giving in here in LA and it seems like a you know an interesting thing to do. So I decided I wasn't gonna stop speaking, but let me go ahead and open one of these retail businesses and have my own employees and my own customers and get some real life experience. Maybe I can make some money doing it, but more importantly, maybe I can learn some real lessons from the field, from the, in, being in the weeds that yeah. then I can use on stage. And so what I learned really quick is so many of the cliches that I said on stage did not translate to the real world. Yeah. Like my employees didn't care that there's no I in team, right? Just because I, I could believe it didn't yeah. mean I could achieve it. All yeah. that crap just didn't translate to the real world. So <laughs> yeah. the business became like a laboratory for me to try out this stuff and of course to make money. Well, that ended up going really well. Well, I started getting invitations, you know, eventually became like the top location in California and we won some awards. I started getting invitations from other franchise systems to speak to their franchise business owners about what they could do to be more successful and to provide better customer service and to elevate their employees. And uh, so now I've spoken to countless franchise brands, have written a book about it. And you know, probably 70% of my audiences are franchise businesses talking to them how to 
elevate their performance, but really gets back to those soft skills, those personal skills, and how that translates to hard results. Yeah, it's 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 so um, I think obvious for someone to just you know look at a franchise or look at a customer service kind of role and and take them for granted, especially in today's day with things moving online, shopping moving online, and the experience being a lot more um, digitized, like whether it's a chat bot or whether it's it's a phone call or so. Um, I think first things first, like, you know, we kind of hear when, you know, the moment we hear of a franchise, automatically we think of, you know, whether it's the, the KFCs or the McDonald's and the, the global chains. But um, especially like, you know, sitting in India now, that's a huge market for McDonald's to tap, right? But at the same time, they have to really customize um, their offering based on Indian tastes or tastes in China or wherever it may be. So as a franchise um, as a person who takes up a franchise, how much do you have uh, within your scope of uh, trying out new things and how much do you have to stick to the guidelines and how does that work? <clears throat> Any smart international franchise brand understands that they have to adapt to the region. Mm -hmm. What most of them do is rather than being you know, a bunch of Americans sitting in a cubicle in you know, Atlanta or New York City, determining how the business should be run in, you know, New Delhi or, or Beijing or someone else. What they'll usually do is um, contract with what they'll call a master uh, franchisee or licensee or master franchisor who basically act as the franchisor in that region. And it's someone who knows that country, who knows that territory. And then together they'll figure out what's the best way to market it, what are the best offerings. And that person or that group is more qualified to operate it in that region. And so the franchisor, wherever they're headquartered around the world, whether it's the US or someone else, they'll take a licensing fee, maybe some kind of percentage, but that regional person acts as the franchisor there, selling locations and supporting franchisees. And uh -huh. so um, that's usually how it works. But the smart brands, they're gonna adapt what they offer to accommodate you know, the local region. Yeah, no, and, and how much, um, you know, is, is left in a job like what i mean by that is um it almost seems when you when you hear the, the 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 kind of voices out there is that everyone wants a better job everyone wants to move up and why not right but when you talk about job satisfaction you talk about employee satisfaction uh, what does it take i mean are there people happy to do certain jobs or does everyone want to be the manager everyone want to be a senior person like um and it, it kind of all becomes a pecking order, right? That you kind of look down on someone who had your earlier job. So how do you face, uh, especially with the changing landscape now, and we have so many um, new aspirations, we have so many new avenues opened up with YouTubing and uh, influencers online. Um, how does a franchise, um, taking up a franchise, number one, maybe also working for something like a McDonald's? Because it's always like, oh, McDonald's, you kind of look down at people who work there. But how do you, how does it actually work? Like, I mean, how do you make these jobs, um, you know, enticing or welcoming or something that people can aspire to also maybe? Everyone who applies for a job wants something different. And not everybody wants upward mobility within that job. For example, mm -hmm. my son is a teenager. His mm -hmm. first job was working for sort of an iconic hamburger chain based here in California called In-N-Out Burger. 
Oh yeah, um, which you wouldn't have. Are you are you familiar with it? Yeah, they're the one of the few places that really do a good um, veggie sandwich. If you uh, have tried it, because otherwise it's pretty hard to get something um, which is you know things. So I I think it's I forget what it's called, but it's 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 delicious. Yeah, I, I'm not, yeah. I know they're not so known it, for their it, vegetable sandwich, but yeah, right. But I mean, it's sort of an, an iconic brand. So my son got his first job there. But he had no desire to grow in the company and be a manager of a fast food chain or anything like that. Yeah. He was looking to make some money so he could, you know, buy video games and go out with his friends and get something on his, his resume. And so, you know, a lot of these franchises are hiring hourly workers who, you know, a lot of their goal is just to make money. In some cases, it's full time. People might be wanting to support families, but they may not necessarily have ambition to grow within that company. Mm -hmm. Other people just want some job experience and some people do want to grow. McDonald's has an extremely high turnover rate. You know, last time I worked with them, I was told that there are, they call it the churn rate. It's about a hundred percent that on average, it might be even worse than that, that if you go to McDonald's one year later, 100% of the employees will be different. They didn't last the year. But what's interesting is those who do, they're the ones who become the managers, and the you know general managers and it, 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 you know eventually you have corporate salary jobs like a lot of them there is that opportunity in an organization like that but if you're a owner of a you know just a local McDonald's restaurant you're not necessarily hiring people who are looking to build a career in that instance you're probably looking for people who are looking for their first job uh, who may not have a background and so you're giving them that opportunity and you're hoping they last more than a few months um, so you're not having to constantly hire so everyone comes with something different. And it's something a lot of managers struggle with. I've written one book. My next book is all about managing hourly workers yeah, and how yeah. to get better retention and better performance. And so much of that is having a better understanding of what people want, what people want today, as opposed to what you think they want or what you believe they should want. Yeah, because when you have someone, yeah, you're right. The motivation behind why they want to work is absolutely uh, individual. But at the same time, if you have completely new people, everything, the experience, of course, no one comes to McDonald's expecting a bond with the server, right? Saying, oh, I remember you. Then like, you know, the, the, the cafes or the boutiques where you tell stories across the counter and you play chess or do whatever they do in yeah. coffee shops, right? I don't, but, <laughs> I don't know you where you're just, getting coffee or people playing chess, but I think I know your point. <laughs> yeah, no, there was a place when I, I, I did my undergrad in uh, a little town near Portland, Oregon. And uh, a friend and I used to go to this coffee shop called the Union Block, and there were these these kind of barista places, right, where you would get the coffee really sort of well presented, and they had a person playing the piano, and then my friend's like, "Let's play chess," and I'm like, "Dude, I just came for coffee. I don't even know how to play chess." So yeah. it's really it's really left a sore point with me because I I came out for a coffee, and then I left feeling bad that I can't play chess. So I'm like, "Yeah, uh, screw that place." <laughs> you just want an energy jolt and it leave feeling like a loser. Yeah, exactly. Because you can't do a Queen's Gambit. Seriously. I mean, I, I all I wanted was this really, really nice dish they had called Raspberry Bear Claw and uh, an Almond Joy coffee. And then I left feeling really demotivated about my, my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wish but, I could have been there for you. I would have done my best to lift your spirits. Thanks, Scott. No, it means a lot even 20 years later that you, you bring it up uh, <laughs> and help. <laughs> but um, yeah, so typical McDonald's. I mean, I, I really... Um, because the conversation you have when it comes to a franchise, right, be it like, uh, I mean, they have things like, um, 
even besides food like snap fitness you have these gym subscriptions and these things across the world um yeah. i don't know why, why is it seen i don't know if i've got the wrong perspective or the wrong idea when it comes to this but is it seen that franchises or franchisees or the the idea of a franchise is lower quality and little cheaper is there a perception it depends on the on the sector when people mm -hmm. think of franchising the first thing that comes to mind is uh quick service restaurants also known mm -hmm. as fast food yeah and so you know the, the food service restaurants that is certainly a very large sector but there's so many others such as uh you know hotel chains a lot yeah. of hotel chains are franchises people don't realize that yeah that you know it is you know individually owned and operated um you know under this this sort of well-known international brand name yeah home services so companies that will come in and whether they're going to paint or whether they're going to redo your kitchen or do you know clean your pool or do your landscaping you know many of those are franchises there are franchises that are medical clinics where employees are medical doctors um mm. and you know senior in-home care uh child care preschools um there's so so um i think in some cases people don't necessarily think it's lower quality but they think of franchise they think of a chain and if their idea of quality that it's a individually owned mom and pop place that's going to have more character and more of those kinds of recipes in some people's minds there's quality there but mom and pops are just as capable of running a crappy restaurant yeah as you know as a franchise right without it's any just, oversight yeah <laughs> it's, just, it's just a little bit more more romantic that it's the the mom and pop shop so um yeah i think the perception varies but a lot of people just don't like the idea of a chain the other thing too is this is they think that well if I go to a Burger King or McDonald's or KFC, well, I'm supporting this big corporate entity. You're really mm. not. That corporate entity is only getting, you know, five or seven percent of the sales. It's a local mom and pop who own that KFC. I mean, it could be a larger company who owns a hundred KFCs, but yeah. more half of franchises are single unit. So it's no different mm. than a mom and pop. They're just paying a percentage to a corporate entity. Right. So, so you're name, still supporting. Too. Yeah, you're still supporting a family in the local economy most of the time when you patronize an individual franchise. You know what's very strange? Um, when you're in a place, you say you live there, you avoid chains, right? You kind of get to know the place. You kind of, as you said, you find the rapport with the local neighborhood store or the coffee shop or you go to your gym, which is in your head. You're like, oh, I've broken from the system. I'm using my um my, my 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 familiarity with the place to go down to the roots and get to know the locals while as you just said the chains are also run by the by the locals and by the moms and pops but the moment you leave and you go to an unfamiliar place like say you travel internationally you really seek comfort in the chains right because you don't want to eat and get your stomach messed up at a local food stall but you want to go and just get a burger and i've heard a lot of people say this like a lot of uh, uh, my American friends are like, oh man, when I when I come to India, I just want to have a burger at McDonald's because it's, I, you know, it's home in some way. So it's very strange that when you're at home, you want to distance yourself from that. But when you're abroad, you want to go back to that because that is your representation of being home. You're <laughs> right. Funny. You know, one of my most embarrassing moments, my wife and I were in Venice, Italy. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we, we do try to go to the local places because I can get McDonald's or Starbucks 
or you know a lot of these ch- i can get that anywhere yeah i want to go to uh, try things that are new and different and, and authentic to the region and you know um uh, do you have Domino's Pizza in India? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so if I go to Italy, I don't want to go to a Domino's. I want to try the pizza, right? <laughs> or an but Olive I Garden, remember, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I remember we were in Italy for like two weeks. It was great, but we ended up in Venice, and I just had so much Italian food up until that point. And I, I don't eat fast food much anymore. But back then, I would occasionally go to McDonald's. My wife and I were like, "Yep, yeah, something familiar would be so great," but we didn't know where one was, and so we asked. A couple gondoliers on the yeah. side of the street. Hey, where's the local McDonald's? And the look on their face, like we were these horrible Americans in Venice, Italy, asking for McDonald's. They're like, oh, you can smell it. I mean, they could not have been more um, offended and more judgmental. And I just felt so embarrassed for even asking. But boy, when I finally got that McDonald's, it, it hit the spot at the time. I just needed something yeah. familiar. I mean, it's, it's that smell of the McDonald's fries. Is like, I, I don't, I don't have the cheeseburger, but the fries, I think, is a universal scent that can draw anyone. Right? It's, yeah. I, but it's strange, you know, because you know you get mocked for wanting something familiar. Like when you know we were, my wife and I were in Paris, and we'd just gone for this ten-day trip where it was like a bachelor bachelorette trip in Croatia and eating. I'm not saying Croatian food. It was kind of just the regular international food, if you want to call it now, right? Your pastas and sandwiches. And then we got to like this really nice part of Paris. And I could just, my nose just took me to the closest Indian restaurant. It was the worst Indian restaurant because it was one of these ones catering to tourists. But I just sat there and my wife's like, I'm so embarrassed. We should be having a croissant. She could be at a patisserie. And I'm like, screw that. I'm going to eat like a curry and rice, you know? And we don't, um, I mean, we do have some very popular Indian chains, you know, which are uh, in New York, which are in LA, which are um, international, like they're based in Madras and now they're in the world. And, and another thing I want to ask you is, see, McDonald's, and these, these are names that anyone in the world will know. And it's almost like a symbolic thing. I remember when the first McDonald's opened up in Russia, it was a huge, big deal for almost on a geopolitical level, right? Like almost saying the the wall has finally broken and the East and West is coming to coming closer and that was done through a mcdonald's but um even with the sort of breaking of geographical boundaries like there are um this this when you go to a grocery store or you you find uh these international foods which you get and food is something i'm 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 coming back to is because that's something that always is the most human thing right so yeah um how does that kind of play out with where we are today, like in in the sense culturally, there is um, a bit of a directional change where people are kind of going back to their own groups while living in an international place. So, like you might have you know, you know Asians in America, or Chinese people, Vietnam Vietnamese people, all kind of flocking to their groups because of so many uncertainties, right? You might call it racial intolerance, you might call it political uh, shifts, or you might call it whatever it may be, just a sense of being closer, but in the same space that they were. So where is this heading when it comes from your experience viewing the world? That's a pretty big question. I'm going to do my best to answer it. Um, When you look at the studies of human happiness, like what enables people to be happy, they all seem to point to the same thing. And that is meaningful human connections mm-hmm. right not just acquaintances but really like connecting one-on-one feeling like you see and that you're seen 
right? Even like introverts and shy people need to feel a sense of connection. And it's easier to feel a sense of connection where, with someone with whom you have similarities, that you have, have the same touch points, that you've watched the same television shows, that you've eaten the same foods. You know, like here we are, we're talking, we're on different sides of the world, but then you tell me that you spent time living in Portland, Oregon, a small town outside of Portland, Oregon. And I want to say, well, which town? Because I know the West Coast, I know Oregon. Suddenly there's familiarity. So if yeah. I, you know, and I mentioned in and out Burger, you're familiar with that. These are common touch points. The more of those we have, the more you and I are connected. So if I go overseas somewhere different, um, I might be enjoying all those things as a tourist to learn about the world. And I also feel like traveling, if you're fortunate enough to do it, is great because it helps you understand where you're from mm. in many ways, right? Because you have a basis for a comparison. But after a while you're there, you're not getting as much human connection because the differences. We were just in Paris during the World Cup. And so we yeah. were there during that fight, watching all the Parisians just come together, screaming, yelling. We felt like such outsiders. Mm. So badly wanted to be French at that moment because it was just the most beautiful thing how connected they were. So that trip and which so we spoke about, we were there for the previous World Cup, uh, or rather the, 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 the Euro Cup. And mm -hmm. I felt the same way. That's why I just wanted to say that. Absolutely yeah. like uh, observers, you know? Yeah. And so I think when you're in an environment where you are part of the out group and you're an outsider and you're different, that when you come across someone with whom that, there's that familiarity, you speak the same language, literally and figuratively, there's an easier, it's easier to connect. It's easier to bond because you have those touch points. So I don't, I don't know that it's inherently that it's discriminatory or racist or prejudice or anything like that as much as you just, it's easier to connect with people with whom there's that familiarity in the same background. Um, unfortunately, it quickly turns into something discriminatory and prejudice and something quite negative, you know, but, you know, I, I think that in order for us to have good friends, we need to have acquaintances. We need to have strangers. We can't be good friends with everyone. Yeah. Um, so the idea is to be able to have your good friends while still being kind and respectful to others who, you know, aren't part of that in-group. You know what you just mentioned now is quite, uh, you know, it's quite important um, to recognize because I'm sure you know people and people listening know people who can really just be so isolated, intentionally create their own bubbles and not make an effort to be, um, to meet new people, to, meet, to be presented by new ideas. Uh, and just have their own value system reinforced by people around them, ideas around them, things around them, familiar uh, places around them. And this, uh, this is across groups, races, cultures, ethnicities, right? Uh, you could have a, a person, an Indian living in, say, you know, um, wherever, maybe in, in Seattle and never meet a non-Indian their whole life. And I, I've heard of stories like that. But it it seems like the world is filled with two people, right? The people who are in their place and want to just be there. And then you have people who are kind of like global citizens, like you just mentioned, you and your wife going and being able to connect um, with me, who's never lived in LA, but who's traveled through LA and you might have traveled through Delhi. But we have common touch points. And I feel the world has got a lot of percentage that people like... You and I keep the keep it keep the connections going because 
I could meet another Indian who I have absolutely no connection with because we don't speak the same language, we never lived the same experience. The only thing that bring kind of identifies us as similar is being the word Indian, but we're not really at all similar. So do, do, do you get a sense of what I'm where I'm coming from? Because I, I feel that's so important and it translates to a business sense and an online sense where there are people who kind of drive this connection by being everywhere yet at the same time identifying or recognizing with certain things like nation or with culture. But then you have people who are so isolated that the people who are international kind of connect them. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm a huge, huge um, proponent of diversity of all mm -hmm. kinds, mm -hmm. not just nationality or racial diversity, but like trying different foods and meeting different kinds of people and talking to people whom you don't agree with. Yeah. Here in the United States, there's it's very popular to watch cable news program commentators. Mm -hmm. Some are very liberal, some are very conservative, and people tend to watch those who they agree with. Right. So it's confirmation bias. Every day their own beliefs are being confirmed and not being challenged. And social media, it happens because the algorithms of many of the platforms, it's once they get a sense of what you think about, what you believe in, they start pushing content that you agree with. Yeah. So you're no longer being challenged. And so it isolates you. And you miss on other perspectives. And you makes it hard for there to be compassion, for there to be empathy. And it creates a, a much more tense world. That's why for me, my favorite thing to do is to travel. I've never been to India and I'm dying to get there. Um, yeah. Over the years, there's been a, a number of companies that keep threatening to bring me out. It hasn't worked out. One day I'm gonna get there either for work or for pleasure, but like that's another part of the world, another culture that I wanna experience firsthand, not by what I hear, not by what I read. And you know, and I can't tell you how many times I've heard stereotypes, I've heard beliefs, you know, the first time I went to the Middle East. I was invited to speak in Saudi Arabia. And, you know, here I am, you know, an American Jewish guy living out here and people were nervous for me. And then I got there and it was a great experience. And mm. yeah, there are a lot of differences, but there's also a lot of similarities. And yeah. I saw the humanity. I saw the families and people working hard and things so much more than the two-dimensional perspective you might get just from chatter or what you see on TV, that kind of thing. And so I think the more we can immerse ourselves in a diverse world of ideas and culture and everything, um, it doesn't make us appreciate what we have any less, but it makes us realize how great the world is. And I think it just enhances life and makes it easier to relate. Beautiful. Now, and you know, with this, with this present uh, landscape climate we're living with uh, the, the economic turn, uh, things heading to a slower economy and people losing jobs. And I'm sure in, in the field you're in, you're completely in, in tune with what's going on, right? With the huge layoffs from the tech companies um, and with this threat or this imminent threat of AI stepping in. Uh, what, what do you feel is the sense of human connection and human motivation? And what what is it? I, I don't ask too broad a picture of what's the future for mankind or for the employees or for people but um, since you have kind of seen so many different models of how people work together and what the kind of drive behind that is um, what shift do you observe happening um, over the next couple of years hmm you know, what's interesting is since the pandemic all the rules for economics, 
seem to be thrown out the door. Like what's mm. supposed to happen actually happens. Um, a lot of the models have been broken. Right. Um, and so that's interesting, right? Us having to kind of revisit and, and reset things. Um, so, you know, still though, I, what I, I don't think will ever change is with, with economics, there's always going to be an ebb and a flow. Yeah. There's times of growth and then there's times when things slow down and shrink. Um, I, uh, I am not threatened by advances in technology or even artificial intelligence. Anytime there's ever been a huge disruptor in the workplace because of technology, everyone panics. Yeah. You know, what's the automobile going to do to all the people who, you know, Road horses. have horses? Okay, yeah, well, yeah. the industry is going to change. But today on Earth, there are more jobs, there's more demand for human input than there's ever been, in mm. spite of all the technologies that have replaced humans. And mm. so I believe that's going to be the case. And I did listen to you at uh, your last message. We were talking about uh, chat GBT. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> my uh, speculation. Great, yeah. And yeah, and some people are freaking out. I'm a writer. I'm about to write a book right now. I'm not threatened by it at all. And I know mm. that colleges are trying, you know, they're worried about people cheating on papers and stuff. Well, maybe the way writing is, the way thinking goes, that all that's going to have to evolve and change as it always has. Um, so it's it's disruptive. We're going to have to make some changes, but generally it leads to more jobs, more opportunities, and a different way of doing things. And so, um, yes, I feel bad for librarians who freaked out when suddenly Google came about, but the world is still operating and people still have jobs. And, you know, and, and again, maybe I'm fortunate because I've never been replaced. And if I had a specific skill set and suddenly that was replaced and I didn't have an immediate place to go, I'd obviously be concerned for myself. So I do, yeah. I'm not without empathy for the people who, you know, back in the day were in the horse trading industry or for librarians with Google or for people who work in coal mines as there's newer, you know, it's not that I don't have empathy there, but I don't think that human beings are going to be replaced. And I think there'll be new opportunities and our job is to be flexible and to adapt and to embrace it. And hopefully that this technology will add to our quality of life and not make us try to be even faster and more efficient and still not be any happier. Yeah. You know, Scott, I think it, it's so important to have people who think like you, uh, especially the way you've looked at the cards you've been dealt, right? And you said you've, uh, you, you, you again were, um, fight you again fought cancer and you again have that 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 journey to to go on or you were on sorry if i got the timeline um wrong but i think the way you look the way you've taken adversity and used it to live life is something that is so important for anyone listening to learn from because it can actually broaden your human experience and of course while going through it it's the hardest thing but the thing you said of letting go of control and kind of can, going from an idea of be, being being in films to telling your story in other ways and changing that constantly is probably why I don't think um, you'll ever find threat from something as trivial as technology. I mean, I'm not saying that it's it's trivial, but I think the lessons that adversity has taught you is something that I think is so um, is giving you so much strength that it's actually enriched your human experience. I'm sorry if I'm putting words in, 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 in your experience, but I just get a sense of listening to you and 
it, it's so important to have these tools because we always look at skills and we look at tools and we look so specifically for a job or for a career. But I feel what you've done over the past how many ever years has given you, um, I think, a, a truly powerful way of navigating life. And I think that's really remarkable. Yeah, you know, I've been I've been fortunate and I've been fortunate in my misfortune mm -hmm. in that I've tried to get something out of it. So it was, you know, 30 years ago that I was diagnosed with cancer. I had Hodgkin's disease. Okay. And then um, in uh, uh, the fall of 2021, um, less than two years ago, mm -hmm. um, I was diagnosed with a totally different cancer, totally unrelated to the cancer I had back in my 20s. And, you know, the first time I had cancer, it led to the speaking career where I'm using cancer as a metaphor and kids had always heard my message and seen the pictures and heard about it. Well, now suddenly I was going through it again. And this time all these people were watching mm. and I felt the burden of that, but I also felt the opportunity. Like I have the opportunity to show my kids what courage looks like, um, right. and what fear looks like. But, you know, that was that having that meaning, that purpose also gave me strength to say, okay, everything I've been saying my speeches all these years, I'm going to walk my talk now and we'll see what happens. Not that I didn't like get upset and freak out and feel yeah. sorry for myself and all those things too. But um, I thought, okay, if this thing takes my life, it's horrible. But if it doesn't, then maybe I have even more to learn, even higher to bounce. Um, I gave a TED talk last year talking about that very thing. We have our, ex our wonderful experiences, what I call the green zone and our terrible experiences in the red zone. And um, during the pandemic, when I lost all my speaking engagements because I had to stay home and all my income went away, yeah. I actually tracked, um, I made a graph of all the high points and low points in my life and drew a line between them chronologically, traced the path of my life. And what I realized is every time I fell deep into the red zone, it immediately led to a big jump into the green zone. And that jump was caused by what happened in the red zone, meaning the best experiences, the greatest opportunities, or the greatest changes in my life were a result of the worst things that have happened to me. And so it's not that you want to go through those bad things again, but you realize there's still value in those things. And the quicker you can realize that and look for it, the quicker you, you can bounce and the higher you bounce. Brilliant. I want to ask you, when you first had uh, 30 years back, you you, you, you fought uh, the disease and when it happened to you again two years back, was there a difference with the, the younger Scott and the older Scott when it comes to um, facing what you had to face? Yes. Mm -hmm. Part of it was where I was at in life mm -hmm. that, you know, where, you know, I was 22 years old the first time. So it was easy just to quit school and just move back home with my parents. Mm. But I also had that sort of like youthful energy. I'm going to beat this thing and still had all that kind of stuff and all that. Where now later in life, I had speaking engagements and responsibilities, contractual obligations, kids to feed. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a lot of people around me who depended on me, not just emotionally, but financially. So that was there and there were, you know, I felt added pressure, but I also felt a higher sense of purpose. Mm. But I also felt um, this second cancer was more painful. Like physically, it was much more taxing on me. Mm. And I'm healthy. I'm not that old, but I'm older than I yeah. was. Yeah. And so I found myself, especially in the hospital, when I first had a surgery and other things, like things were getting to me a little bit more. 
Mm. And my recovery wasn't as quick. Mm. And whereas before I'd be very brave and say, I don't need painkillers. I'm not going to worry about anti-nausea medication. This time it's like, give me everything. Yeah. Give it as much as possible, as soon as possible. <laughs> and, um, you know, so it was a bit heavier for me, you know, because of that. Um, so I just had to be a lot more deliberate about mm. um and honestly you know another level of pressure is i make my living as a professional speaker so i made the choice to be completely quiet to keep it a secret because mm. i didn't want it getting out in my professional world that not only had cancer but i had throat cancer because oh, okay. who wants to who wants to, to hire a speaker or for a speaker's bureau who wants to sell a speaker who not only does he have cancer but has it in his throat and might not be able to talk might not mm. so I chose to keep it a complete secret and came up with excuses saying, well, I'm sorry, I can't take that engagement. I'm busy when really I right. knew I'd be recovering. And so I, having to go through it uh, secretly without as much professional support as I could have got also added some stress um, mm -hmm. to the whole thing. Now I'm more open about it and I kind of publicly revealed it when I gave that TED talk. And, but now I'm healthy and you know, I've got a clean bill of health and things are fine. And now I, I use that experience in my messaging and you know that's that's been helpful but yeah very different experience the second time around and uh, I, I hope that's the last time i hope so too i'm so glad you're well and it's it's you know it's it's such a it's such a pleasure speaking with you uh scott about the just the lessons that we can kind of learn from ourselves you know many times as opposed to looking out and finding books of course everything has its place but i think just a reminder that you know you have uh, absolutely an, a huge archive from your own life. I think is a great message, and I really appreciate you taking the time to join me and uh, um, appreciate you sharing your experiences, your knowledge, and your story with me on this podcast. Thanks. I would be thrilled to come to Bangalore and go out for coffee and raspberry bear claw <laughs> and play chess and both just call it a draw and say we're both losers and have Done. that experience with you and then get some KFC because I'm gonna need something familiar once I'm there. <laughs> but that would be that would be really cool someday. I get you some Dominoes in Bangalore and you wouldn't recognize it because trust me, eh, the other day my wife and I uh, wanted to get pizza and oh sometimes a Dominoes thin crust or even a hand-tossed margarita just hits the spot you know you're hungover you're feeling a little down and a sunday evening and you just have open a couple of beers and a dominoes oh <laughs> but I, we were looking at the menu and then they have these dishes they've indianized and trust me you wouldn't get that hardcore indian food in any place in la at an indian restaurant but it was <laughs> so indian it was quite fantastic but I really appreciate it and I hope you can come to Bangalore and uh, if people want to uh, find your book and uh, any other resources, where can they reach out or look for you? Well, so my name is Scott Greenberg. Um, last name is spelled G-R-E-E-N-B-E-R-G. So you can find me on most social media, you know, LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook. My website is scottgreenberg.com. Mm -hmm. And my book is called The Wealthy Franchisee. So you can just, you know, Google The Wealthy Franchisee by Scott Greenberg and it's it's out there wherever books are sold. Fantastic, Scott. Thank you so much for taking the time and uh, I look forward to everything coming up. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. 
If you liked what you heard, please do check out the other episodes on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. And I would much appreciate it if you could like the video, share it with people who you think might enjoy it. And of course, do subscribe to the channel because it will help me and the podcast grow and reach more people just like you. So thanks again. Appreciate it.